Well, good morning. Thank you so much for letting me be here with you. My name is Joseph Smith, and admittedly, I was not in here during um, the reading of the Word earlier before worship, so I'm not sure if Joseph already made a Mormon joke or not. Uh, so I'm just going to skip right on by it, and we're going we're gonna to go. But my name is Joseph Smith, and um, I am very honored to be here with you, and I've already been blessed by worshiping with you. And uh, with your early service as well, this is a great church living to glorify and honor the Lord. And that is truly what we're doing. Um, I've been in ministry for over uh, 23 years and uh, 20 years at Switzerland Community Church, literally right across the river in St. John's County on State Road 13. I've been the lead pastor there for the past six years and I just stepped down in February, uh, not for anything bad, uh, the blessing of the elders and with the timing of God to continue to pursue His calling and His work and missions and uh, working with uh, training and developing pastors and church planters throughout Central and South America. So um, it allows me, though, to spend time with uh, the full body of Christ and come and spend time with you all and, uh, and be able to continue to elevate and praise God for His Word. I'm honored to stand in the pulpit today. This is a, an honored thing. I thank Pastor Mark and uh, Joseph and the staff for allowing me and the leadership of the church allowing me to do so. Um, but I do want to say something about that. You see, the Word of God in the pulpit is central to what we do as a church. There's no reason for us to gather if we do not confess that the Word of God has all authority and all power over our lives. So what we do in this time is nothing to shrug at. That's why I often tell pastors who are training to plant churches and work is to say, don't fill the pulpit with, uh, with just stories for the sake of good stories. Rather, use the time you have honoring the Lord and glorifying the name of Jesus Christ. And there will be stories that need to be told in order to do so. So as a guest pastor, I get to say some things that your pastor doesn't, right? Because you can kick me out and it's not going to matter. But let me tell you that uh, as, as a pastor takes the pulpit, um, and I say this to honor your pastor and to elevate you as a church, there are two very specific burdens that I want to lay out to you that every pastor feels if they're truly seeking to glorify and honor the Word of God, which I know Mark does. First is this, exactly what I just said. You walk up to this pulpit feeling the burden of the glory and the weight of the gospel. You see, to declare the glory of the gospel is an impossible task. Of course, I don't mean that the gospel cannot be declared because that's what we're called to do. Simply, I mean this, that no one who walks up to this pulpit, myself or anyone, has the capacity and intellect, the imagination, or the language to communicate the true beauty and glory of the gospel of Christ. Let me say it another way. The greatest poem ever written the greatest song ever sung, the most researched sermon ever preached, the greatest passion ever displayed by any preacher who has ever lived are equal to no more than just the jester in the court of the great king. It's by the grace of God, His choosing, that we who stand here could ever communicate anything through the power of the Holy Spirit that would affect change in the hearts of a congregation like you. So that is a weight walking up here, building yourself in confidence. I'm going to preach the Word of God. And then you walk down from this pulpit going, what did I just do? May God have mercy and grace on us. The second burden, 
one I do not share with your pastor, but I respect immensely, is the burden of the need of a specific congregation, you. When a pastor walks up to this pulpit, he looks over his congregation and he prays that God would grant him the blessing of practically and powerfully intersecting the struggles, the successes, and the greatest needs of the people. That you might walk away more than just encouraged on a Sunday morning, but forever changed by the grace of God. So this morning, I'm aware of the job that I have stepped up here to do, and I'm confessing that I am ill-equipped to do so. So may God grace us and bless us in this time together. What I want to talk about is I want to elevate, as we talked about, the glory of God and Christ in us. So today's message, I'm just going to give the no tension in this message, right? I'm going to give it to you up front. We're talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's my job. It's not to adjust your politics. It's not to talk about uh, how you raise your kids or uh, to tell you to fix your marriage, right? Unless your marriage is broken, then you, you should. But that's not my job. That's your pastor's job. My job is to elevate the glory of Christ that we might see him clearly and that we might honor what you all are doing as a church as you worship him. So what I want to talk about specifically, what I want to drive toward is the journey in all of our lives to daily live in the glory of the Lord. And to do so, I'm going to use the text of Matthew chapter 8. So you can turn there with me. That's going to be the text that we navigate through as we work through this sermon. And it's a text all of you know very well, right? Matthew chapter 8, verse 1 through 4. But I pray that this morning uh, you see some things that just, that just delight you. I pray that you experience the truth of the gospel of Christ that's in this text that opens you up, that you walk out and you say, man, that's, that's awesome, Okay. So, verse 1, let's read this together. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand, and he touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Simple text, one of which all of you have read and maybe even thought through or heard multiple sermons on. Today, though, I'm making a claim in this text. My claim is this, is that we see a movement of the gospel of which all of us need to think about and actually lay as a measuring stick across our own life. This movement should challenge us this morning as we claim to be God-glorifying, Christ-exalting believers in this church. So, starting with this, many of you know that this isn't the only place this miracle is recorded. Right? Over in Mark chapter 1, we see this miracle is recorded as well. And there is actually great value in comparing the two and the way that they, they speak and things like that, but that's not this sermon. Okay, I'm letting you know that up front. I specifically want to preach out of Matthew, looking at the genius and the 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 intentional, pointed direction that Matthew intends to give us the details of this story. He doesn't record any detail in his, in his gospel at random. It's actually very intentional. And I want to help you understand what I mean by this, okay? So this is actually a setup for the points we're going to work through in our sermon. 
But I want to walk through Matthew's intent and help you see how Matthew is one of the most genius, creative authors, in my opinion. Let's start with just this. Matthew's obsession with fulfillment in his gospel. Right? Think about it. It it, it starts in the very first verse of this book. Chapter 1, verse 1 of Matthew reads this way. The book of genealogy, or the Genesis, the beginning, right? The Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. And you may look at me and you may go, Pastor, you're making a really big deal out of the beginning of a genealogy, right? But it is a big deal. Think about it this way. The Old Testament, the book that led us all the way to here, narratively ends. I'm saying narratively because we have prophecy beyond it. But narratively, it ends at Nehemiah. And you remember Nehemiah, right? Nehemiah built the wall, right? Are you with me? Amen. Give me something, right? <laughs> Nehemiah built the wall. The problem is that we reduced Nehemiah that. The wall was built by like chapter 5, chapter 7. The rest of the book talks about Nehemiah begging the presence of God to return to the people. They set up and they read the law together in covenant and they're wanting to recreate that moment. You remember all of you biblical scholars when Solomon prayed in the glory cloud came into the temple and filled the temple and the people of God said, God is with us. We are awesome. Not because we're awesome, but because God is with us. And Ezra and Nehemiah, as they come back from captivity, they build the wall, they rebuild the temple, right? And then as they get all that done, they go, let's, let's do the thing. The Solomon thing where we all read the law and we pray and we worship God. And guess what's going to happen? His glory cloud's going to come down and we're going to be awesome because God is with us. But if you've read Nehemiah, this narrative end to the Old Testament, you know that that never happens. And in chapter 13, Nehemiah comes back to the city and sees the people living in sin, defiling the temple, and he cries out. I think he hit some people too, but that's beside the point. And he cries out and he says, God, remember that I tried. Remember me for good. I don't know why you didn't come. But just remember me. The narrative ending of the Old Testament is like a Greek tragedy. Right now we have the prophetic hope of God is still moving. You're not forgotten about. God will redeem you. But we don't have His presence. And then we enter, after that point, we enter the 400 years, does anybody know this? 400 years of silence, right? By the way, it was not silent. But what we mean is is that no new scripture was written, no new prophecy was given, and it was, for intents and purposes, silent. And then you think that maybe it might be random? And Matthew, with a bullhorn of his first verse of his book, says, Behold, the beginning, your wait is over. 400 years is no longer silent. Why? Because the son of David and the son of, da- the son of Abraham are here. The two greatest hopes of the Old Testament. Right? The covenant hope of family with you and the ruling king of all the earth. He says, your wait's over. As a matter of fact, to prove my point even further about Matthew, I want you to look down at verse 23 of chapter 1. Our Christmas verse, right? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And what I love about Matthew is he says, for those of you who don't know Hebrew, 
He gives it in parentheses and he says, I'm going to tell you what that means so that we drive the point home. Emmanuel means God with us. Can you see what's happening here? Matthew says, I want to make very clear that the waiting is over, that the tragedy of God's return to Nehemiah isn't the end, but Jesus has come in the flesh and all of the hopes of King David and King Abraham and all of the waiting of the people of God is now over in Jesus Christ because He is God with us. But that's not all, right? He says, oh, no, Jesus doesn't. Jesus fulfills everything. So I, can, I feel like Matthew is, is, is quoting in his head as he gets through chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, and even chapter 5. He's quoting the narrative of Moses in his head. Maybe Deuteronomy 18, 15, where he says, The Lord your God, this is Moses talking to the people, The Lord your God will rise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him whom you shall listen. Now, I know you guys have been doing a study through the book of Hebrews. Amazing. So you're on this train of Jesus is greater, right? Jesus is better. Well, Matthew follows that train. I think he's driving it, right? Think about it. In chapter 2 of Matthew, he is the only gospel writer who records King Herod killing babies to try and get to him. Wait, wait do you, have you heard that story before? Maybe back in Exodus? Maybe back in, in the days of Pharaoh killing the babies and who comes from, from that? Moses through that to, to deliver the people? Hmm. Here comes Herod killing babies, but Jesus comes through saved by God to deliver the people, right? Uh, Matthew chapter 3, Jesus returns and enters Jerusalem and He does throw through the waters of baptism. And then immediately in chapter 4, goes out to spend 40 days and nights in the desert to be tempted by the enemy. Are you seeing any parallels here? Okay, maybe it's just by this point, it's just happenstance, right? Like, okay, so it looks a little bit like, looks a little bit like Moses. Then how do you deal with Matthew chapter 5? When Jesus ascends with all to the top of the mountain and at that point begins teaching the law. You think Matthew's doing something, right? Matthew's saying something about who Jesus is and he's ordering his text in a very specific way. And that takes us all the way to chapter 8. It's not random. And that's why I want to communicate in this way. It brings us to chapter 8. And uh, when Jesus comes down from the mountain, Right? And we've, we've checked all the boxes. Oh man, he's like Moses. Oh man, he's greater than Moses. Oh man, he's got authority over the law. And then when we come down off of that mountain, this powerful shift, or you might even call it a climax of this comes in where the, the one who has authority over all things, let's see what happens when he intersects the, practically, the practical reality of this world. And the first, first person he comes in contact with is the leper which has significant importance. And I, I have so much more I want to say. And those of you who are nerds in this congregation, we can connect later and we'll talk through some of that. But for the sake of this, this sermon, I want to make a claim that in these four verses, there is a life that is transferred from the outskirts of faith to the daily presence of the glory of God. And that's what we're concerned with this morning. So my feeble attempt is to navigate three checkpoints 
of this gospel faith journey to living in the glory of God. Three checkpoints, right? Because a good sermon has three points, right? And so that's, you'll, you'll, you'll realize what I did because point two and three go together. I just split them so that we'll have three points, right? So that's what we're doing. So, so right now, allow me to take a moment and pray for the power of the Holy Spirit beyond our ability to wield, beyond your ability to receive, but only by the grace of God. Let's bow our heads. Father, we praise you and we thank you for the opportunity this morning to even peruse the glory of this life-giving word. I ask that our hearts come alive and we experience the true glory of your presence even this morning. With that, Lord, we ask that your spirit have full reign in our hearts and in our lives to convict us of sin and to encourage us to your obedience and glory. I also ask, Lord, that any of these words that have come from me and, not are, and are not from you, that they be forgotten quickly and set aside. And that, Father, the words that come from you and that are moved into the hearts of this congregation through your Spirit would remain and grow and strengthen. We ask for your grace and mercy during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So, what I'd like to do is I'd like to dive into this, our three checkpoints, right? And, and they're going to follow in order, a sequential order of the text, right? Uh, and so what I want us to get in here is, is the first verse sets up our scene, right? When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. But verse 2 is where our first checkpoint is going to come into play. It says, And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. I know that you've probably heard many sermons on this statement, and I don't want to recap all of the different things uh, other than they're good sermons. What I want to do is I want to harp on what I have been, been focusing on already, is that I'm convinced that Matthew has used this statement by the leper as a logical outflow of the events that have unfolded up to this point in line. Right? What do I mean? I mean this. That if you have been truly following Matthew's fulfillment narrative unfolding of Emmanuel, right? God with us in this text. Then by the time you reach this point of the narrative in Matthew 8 verse 2. That you're reading these words of the leper in complete agreement. You are saying, I acknowledge that Jesus has authority and that he is greater and that he is able. Right? Checkpoint number one of the gospel is this, this acknowledging him as Lord. The leper comes, hears his teaching, sees what's happened, and, and knows who he is, and he falls before him and he says, I know that you are Lord, and if you are willing, you can make me whole. But the confession of this leper in Matthew's way seems to be a personal restatement of what Matthew just said about all of the people. Right? If you look back up, just, just up in your Bible, just two verses. Right? At the end of chapter 7, he caps off that whole mountain teaching by saying this, and when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. They were astonished at his teaching, look at verse 29, for he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. You see what's being said here? 
the people who heard him, the people who were in his midst, you, as you get to this point in Matthew, are saying, he's not like anything else. Whereas our scribes teach us, they just recant what the law says. Jesus seems to have authority over it. And this is the beginning place. Right? This is the first checkpoint. Is Do you come to a place where you, you get to a point where you say, it makes sense. There's no other scribe in this life. There's no other thing in my life that has authority like Jesus has authority. This is that decision moment we talk about in the gospel, right? Where you come in and you say, I've tried to live my life on my own authority. or I've tried to do what this person says or what they say or the seven tips of success or whatever this may be. And I've done all that. But, but I, I hear this gospel of Jesus Christ and there's something. I'm in awe of the authority that is displayed in Him that it's clear nothing else in this world has for me. Right? Starting place. This acknowledgement of Jesus your Lord. And I'm not going to pass by this point assuming that everyone in here is, is through it. You know, this is the starting place. If you're in here this morning and you're going, I don't know, I still think that there's other authority out there. I still think there's something great out here in the world and that Jesus is a good teacher, but I, I don't know that He is... If that's where you are, then, then maybe this moment is the moment that you need to deal with that in your heart. You need to say, where do I really stand on who Jesus is? And where do I really stand on, on what I believe about His authority and His power? And that's when, <laughs> before you leave this room today, while we take communion and while Joseph uh, leads us in worship as we close, that's when you bow your knee and you bow your head and you say, Father, right now I give you my life. I'm ready for Jesus to leave my life. That's this point. This leper's thrown himself down on his knees before Jesus and said, you're it. And every one of us need to deal with where we are in that. However, as I've said, this isn't all the gospel. Otherwise, we'd be packing up and heading home or to lunch or wherever you guys want me to finish so that you can go to. Whatever it may be, this is just the beginning place. We have two more checkpoints that we need to work through. And, and the next two checkpoints seem to be harder points to navigate. It seemed to be harder for us to really understand and grasp. And so I, I hope that by the grace of God, we can get through them. So the second checkpoint, right? The first checkpoint is acknowledge Jesus as Lord, right? In this journey to living in the glory of God every single day. The second checkpoint is to receive and live in His salvation. Now this may seem like a simple statement, but I want you to understand what I mean and what I think Matthew's driving at by using this story of the leper right here. Is that there is a power in the salvation of Jesus that some of us don't fully understand what's happening. And I think this, this narrative, this story helps open that in a more clear way for us to see. And, and this is how I want, I want to see it. Look at verse 3 with me of our text. And Jesus, this is after the leper came and said, if you will, you can make me clean, right? Jesus stretched out his hand and he touched him saying, I will, I am willing, right? Be clean. 
and immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Now, I don't want you to miss the significance of what's happening in this text. The leper confesses that Jesus is Lord over all. And with faith, I think he's saying that he's even greater than this uncontrollable sickness that he deals with in his own body. Right? And I've heard many sermons on this verse highlighting the touch of Jesus in this text. Because Jesus reaches out and touches him. And I've heard many sermons that focus on that. And often we put focus on Jesus' touch as a microcosm of the overall compassion of Jesus' healing ministry. Why did Jesus touch the leper? Because he just couldn't help himself. Right? He saw someone hurting and he had, to, he had to touch him. I'm not saying that's not true. But I am saying that if we think in terms of what Matthew is doing and the way Matthew communicates, we've got to question there's more to this. Right? I don't think these are bad views. I just think we've got to spend some time in Matthew. So I've heard some preachers go here, right? The law. Let's talk about the law. Was it legal for someone to touch a leper? No, right? Jewish law, you're absolutely not allowed to touch a leper. So people go, that's it. Jesus is a compassionate rebel. That's what he is. He had so much compassion that he went, man, forget the law. I'm going to touch him, right? That's a dangerous sermon. Be careful. Maybe, maybe, maybe hit stop on that one. And let, let's, let's work through what's actually being done here because remember, Matthew is all about fulfillment. And by the way, did Jesus have to touch the leper to heal him? No, because you as biblical scholars know the very next story is the, the, the uh, centurion and he tells him, all you have to do is say the word and Jesus says, you're right, done. And Jesus didn't have to touch him. But he did. What is Matthew doing? Because details are not random here. They're important. So I want, I, want to, I want to claim that he touched the leper in the same thing that Matthew's always done is to fulfill prophecy and hope in the salvation of God's people. Let's do a little work to unpack that. And I hope you can see this like I see it. Turn with me to Isaiah 6. I think it's on the screen. Isaiah 6, one of my favorite texts in all of Scripture. So if I get choked up, just wait a second, I'll be good. Starting in verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah. Okay, and I, I want you to remember that because he's actually important. Okay, but listen to what it says. In the year King Uzziah died. Right, what a great time marker. You know, the year he died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne. This is Isaiah's vision in the temple. I saw him sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Listen to this. And above him stood seraphim, each with six wings. With two they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. But look at this. Verse 4. And the foundations and the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. It's like a whole nother sermon that I want to I like preach to you right now, but my wife says, no, we don't have time for that. Right? But you, your brains, because you're, you're academic, biblical scholars, I know that's true of you, your brains are automatically going to other places like Solomon. Praying and, and the glory cloud and smoke filling the temple and the foundation shaking as God's presence comes, right? Or maybe your brain is jumping back to Exodus 19. 
You say all oh, back in the beginning when God's people are led out of Egypt and Mount Sinai and the, the fire comes down and shakes the mountain and smoke fills the top of the mountain and the people of Israel go, we're not going up there. Moses, you can go. We are not, lest we die. I think both of those are probably in sight here. But Isaiah says, and this beautiful promise of God, you think Isaiah's a prophet during this time when, you know, in the exile time and, and right before it, and he's saying there's a time where God's glory is going to fill this temple. Anyway, not my sermon. That's just, that's free for you. Listen, it says, look at verse 5 because this is where I'm going. After this happens, he says, and I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Look at this. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth, and he said, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. I said I wasn't going to do this. I lied. Listen, you see what's happening here? Two, I think, extremely important observations that, that prove for me that Matthew is reaching back to this imagery and he's grabbing hold of it and he's pulling it into this moment where Jesus reaches out and touches the leper. The first being this, this idea of the law, that what is unclean, this is the law, what is unclean when it touches that which is clean, that which is clean becomes what? Unclean. That is the law, period. That's why you cannot touch a leper. That's why you cannot touch a dead body because that which is clean becomes unclean when it comes in contact with that which is unclean. But here in Isaiah, the very promised hope that God is giving Isaiah, this is the prophecy you'll provide in the very thing all of Israel needs is that one who is holy that which is holy will come and it will touch that which is unclean and that which is unclean will be overwhelmed with holiness. Does that, is that just, you know, I know you get it. I know you know the gospel is God came in and forgave me, but I don't think we live in a way that truly foundationally believes that we have been made pure and holy and righteous by the touch of Jesus through his death and resurrection. This is why checkpoint number two is so hard. But that's only one observation from this text that, that I'm saying Matthew's going back and grabbing. Let's talk about the second one. right? I told you to remember King Uzziah at the beginning. And very unique that Isaiah 6 tells he's doing something, right? In the year of his death, we usually mark things by the year of his reign in the Old Testament, correct? But he marks it the year of his death. Interesting, do you remember the story of King Uzziah? King Uzziah is the one who rushed into the temple to make a sacrifice to God while the priests were going, no, 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 don't do it. And then when he did, what happened to him? He was struck with leprosy. 
And the rest of his life he lived in leprosy, not able to stand and worship in the temple of God. But you know what? If that's not enough, maybe you say that's just a coincidence. I want you to hear the language from the law and you'll hear that Isaiah 6 is definitely referring to leprosy. In Leviticus 13, as the law is giving instruction to those who are leprous and what they must do, starting in verse, well, specifically and only, I'm bringing up in verse 45, says this, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And listen to this. And he shall cover his upper lip, and he shall cry out, unclean, unclean. Can you hear in Isaiah, as he says, woe is me, I've seen the holiness of God, I'm a man of unclean lips, among a people of unclean lips. God, we are leprous in our spirituality and in our faithfulness. And God touches him and says, but I can make you pure. Jesus touches this leper, and it's more than just he's a compassionate rebel. It's that all the authority and power of salvation and overwhelming of sin and the enemy has been given to him. And as he comes in contact with you and me, listen, listen to what I'm saying. Your sin cannot overwhelm power of his righteousness. It cannot overwhelm the power of his righteousness. And I think we get stuck here. I think this is checkpoint number two, that I checked the box, I raised my hand, I prayed the prayer. But now I walk around every day out there depressed. I walk around guilty and shameful because I hate my sin and I feel like I'm a sinner And then I'm questioning myself every day, am I really saved? I'm not saying that's not a bad question. What I'm saying is that if you've come to know Christ and He has reached out and touched you, it wasn't you then being obedient that saved you. You can't. Don't fall into the trap of just going back to some legalism where Jesus starts you off with the gospel and then from that point you grow into helping Him save you. That's not how this works. That's not what your obedience does, by the way. And by the way, vice versa, your failure. It's not, I saved you as long as. And then when I fail tomorrow, Jesus goes, oh, shucks. And I really wanted to save you. I hung on that cross and I died and I did the most powerful thing in all the world, but I can't believe you just did that. That's not how this works. It's not the gospel and it has no place in the biblical truth of Jesus Christ. I'm just being bold with you. And like I said, you can kick me out and we cannot talk after this, but I love you and I'm telling you, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus cleansed you by his touch, not by your will. So my third checkpoint, which I already told you is just a compliment to the second one, is this. Worship him with all of your affection. 
And I've got my son rolling his eyes at me because he's heard this sermon about 20 times. Or some form of it. Look at verse 4 with me. After Jesus touches him and he is immediately cleansed, look at verse 4. It says, And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone. And, and there's a lot of, of sermons that will focus there. I'm not going to focus there, right? But it says, Go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded, a proof for them. You understand what's happening here? The leper, who is the farthest away, right? Which, by the way, just, just a nerdy side product for free that you can have. Matthew, the way he organizes Texas genius. Because the first miracle in this is the leper, who is, where did the leper have to be? On the outside of the city. Farthest away from the Holy of Holies, right? The second miracle is the centurion. Where were the centurions? The outer courts. Right? And the third one is a woman right inside of that. He's taking them in determination of distance to the Holy of Holies, and he's, in, he's intersecting them and saying, go and worship in the Holy of Holies. You've been made clean. That's powerful to the gospel. That's for free. You can impress, impress some people around the public pool with that one. But listen, this is what's happening. He's taking the one that's super far away, and he's saying, you've been healed. And, and listen, these words, I can see the leper just bawling because he goes, now go to the temple. And the leper says, I'm not allowed in the temple. And then he goes, oh no, I am. I'm not able to walk in there according to the law. Oh wait, I can. <laughs> That's what's happening here. I want to I read the statement. The hope of the gospel is that sin and flesh would be rendered dead and powerless through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That the believer would stand boldly in the presence of God, overwhelmed by the glory of his salvation and affectionately consumed in worshiping the Father. This leper stepped away from a world he knew of uncleanliness. And I just wanted to be in his mind as his eyes beheld the pillars, the priests, the altars, as he walked in to worship his father. It must have been better than anything he had ever experienced out in the world. I mean, Jerusalem was beautiful. The walls were pretty. The gates and entrances were nice. Right? The leper could have said, I don't know, this temple doesn't quite look as beautiful as the pillars on the gate. I don't know, outside the city was kind of nice. It's not the way this worked. He walked in and there was nothing out there that compared to the glory and the beauty of being in the presence of the holy. You see, so many believers have lived their lives minimizing the power and the work of the gospel. The damaging effect has been lives declaring faith but yet obviously void of daily gospel joy and worship to God. We come in on Sundays and we do it to rehab the damage that we've lived all week. Rather, rather realizing that when you're healed from leprosy and you're in the presence of the Father, Monday is no different than Sunday. And worship 
is the state of our hearts and our lives, not simply something we do. We get caught on this checkpoint because we have a hard time believing we are who Jesus says we are. So I'm going to read a couple verses to you. And I don't want you taking notes. I don't want you writing them down. Uh, Joseph, I gave him my, my notes, and I told him he's free to distribute. Anybody who wants it, you can see exactly what texts are referred to and things like this. I actually want you to close your eyes, and I want you to realize that this was written about you, not about the person next to you, unless it's them, and then, of course, it's written about them. Anyway, follow me. It's written about you. Close your eyes and listen to these words and understand that it's not, if you've come to know Christ, it's not a choice. This is true by the power of Jesus, not by the will that's inside of you. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21 through 23. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if indeed you continue in the faith. I read this and I say, I'm not blameless. I'm not above, above reproach. This confuses me because he says that in Christ, this is who you are. And some will do exegetical backflips and say, oh, well, they mean if you continue to grow and maybe in the last day. Well, that's not true either. There's no sanctification on this earth that is going to make me blameless, holy, and pure. That is only the work of the blood of Jesus Christ. He didn't save me a little. He saved me all. Right? You don't get to heaven and you don't go, oh, Jesus, I was mostly good, so I only used this much of Jesus' blood. No, you either used all of it or you used none of it. And so I get confused because I say, I know I'm not those things, but Jesus says you are those things. So my struggle, this is me, I wake up tomorrow and I'm going to struggle to say, Joseph, you are holy, you are pure, and you are blameless before the Father. Does that feel weird to you? Maybe even dirty? Go, I can't say that. Here's the, here's the struggle. If you don't say that, if you don't say that, you're in danger of not living a life in glorifying worship to God daily. You are in danger of minimizing the work of the cross and subjugating the resurrection from the dead to something weaker than the sin and the flesh that's in your life. That's why I love, because I still struggle with my flesh, why I love Romans 7 so much. Many of you know this verse, but I want you to focus on one specific point. Paul says, did that which is good. Don't get caught up in this. He's, he's talking about the law. The law is good, but I'm not good in the law. So what, it, anyway, don't get caught up on that. All right, we, we can have a nerdy conversation about that later. But listen to this. He says, did that which is good then bring death to me by no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. Sin through the law is what condemned me in order that sin might be shown to, to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know, that the law is, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold under sin. Listen to verse 15. This is where I'm getting. 
For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Hear that. Verse 18, for I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is, I love this qualification, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but rather the evil I do not want is what I keep doing. Listen to verse 20. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Those of you who are grammar nerds or, or whatnot, do you give a pass on, on Paul here? He keeps saying, it's not I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Is Paul just, just justifying his sin? He's just going, it wasn't me, the devil made me do it. Is that what this is? No, it's not. You see, the entire book of Paul, he's already, he, in Romans, Paul, the, the Romans, he, in the earlier part, he's already said everyone is a sinner and no one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that word fall short literally means lack. You don't have it. You do not have the glory of God. It was lost, and guess who? Adam, right? And congratulations, Adam gave you a gift. It's sin and death. Romans 5. But Christ came and gave you a different gift. What was that gift? Justification and righteousness. <laughs> And Paul says, and this is what you need to hear in this final checkpoint. If you have come to know Jesus Christ, or if you're out there and you're saying, this morning might be the morning, I want you to understand it's not a passive thing. There is a transformation that is done inside of you in your very spirit through the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That's why as Paul continues to run through Romans, Romans 6.18, he says, you were once a slave to sin. And now, and I love it because people want to hear, I'm free in Christ. That's how he says. He says, you're a slave to righteousness. You see, something's been transformed in you. And over here, when you lived in sin, you received some joy. It filled you up. But now that you've come to know Christ, and transformation's happened in your life, now when you go to these same sins, they're black and white. They're tasteless. They have nothing. And you live in depression going, Why? Have I lost the joy that I once had? It's because, as Paul says, you're now a slave to righteousness and the only place joy comes from in the life of the true believer is obedience to Jesus Christ. It's not some law to make you feel guilty. It's to bring you joy every single day. It only gets hard when it becomes a law that you can't live up to. But stop making it a law. Obedience to Christ is a joy of worship every single day. And then in Romans 7, he says, after 6, and he moves on, and he says, listen, now that I'm a transformed being, what do I say about the temptation I still have in the flesh? It's not me. I love that. It's not me. I'm no longer stative a sinner. I may struggle with sin, but I no longer can be called a sinner. I am righteous, holy in the blood of Jesus Christ. So when sin rises up in me, 
It's an alien to me. It is outside of me impressing itself on me. So I must wage war on my sin to fight it, to exile it, and to remove it because it no longer belongs in me. Don't miss this. This daily war on sin and the joy of worshiping the glory of the Father every single day is what the Christian life is about. And by the way, it's what will declare the goodness of Christ to the entire world. It's this joy. So understand this last thing and we'll close because I'm out of time. Sin does not wage war on the battlefield of your logic. Sin does not convince you that it is good and that's why you do it. Right? I don't know if you're like me, but I can both know it's wrong and be doing it at the same time. Sin does not have to convince you that it's okay because that's not the way it works. You see, sin wages war on the battlefield of affection. You sin because you love it. You sin because temporarily it gives you some feeling of fulfillment, but then quickly wastes away. And the more we as Christians try to fight sin on our logic, the more we try to sit down and say, this is why it's bad, is not going to change that we are going to continue to do it. And until our affections, which is where I'm going with this third point, until our affections can overwhelm that of sin for Christ Jesus, we will struggle in that battle. Until I can say the closeness and the purity that I have in Christ is so much greater than that pornography that's on the internet. I'm telling you, I'll never defeat that pornography that's on the internet, even if I know it's wrong. If I can't say that my affections for closeness to Christ and in the presence of God is so much more amazing than this deception that lies in my job and my business, then I will never give heed to this. I will always, even if I know it's wrong, fall to this. You see, this third checkpoint is for you and I to analyze our hearts and as we move into the glory of the gospel daily to say, am I waking up saying, Father, my joy is overwhelmed with obedience to you today. And I worship you for the opportunity to be in your presence as pure and as holy by the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus, if you are willing today, you can make us clean. And I pray the Holy Spirit does not let any of us go away without searching our hearts to grow the affection that we have for our Lord Jesus Christ as true believers in Him. Allow me to pray with you. Father, we thank you and we praise you for the depth of the gospel and the glory of the work of Jesus Christ. I ask that, Father, where I have fallen short, your spirit would fill in with all wisdom and understanding in the hearts of your people. I pray, Father, that as we worship and take communion and go from here, that we would do so in an honoring and a glorifying way. And that if there's anyone in here, Father, who has yet to come to the knowledge of you in faith, that, Father, you would move and stir their hearts even now. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.